Welcome to the My Chains Are Gone podcast, a place where people are sharing their stories of how God has brought them life and freedom through Jesus. What a joy it was to hear from Billy Glosson today. He shares his journey of faith and how God has shaped him and given him a purpose and drive to pursue preaching and church planting in North Carolina. In some very tender parts of his story, he shares of two crushing experiences in which God faithfully carried him through, a heart shattering with a fiance, and more recently, a miscarriage with his wife, Hannah. I hope you are encouraged by Billy's words and God's work in his life. Billy, thank you so much for joining me on the My Chains Are Gone podcast. Absolutely. This is a fun way to do it. We're doing it on Skype for all the listeners because you are where? I am in Morganton, North Carolina. Yes. And you used to live in Columbia. So how long have you been in Morganton? Just over a year last week. Congratulations. Well, I really appreciate you giving Skype a try for us um, to hear your story. So, Billy, tell me about your childhood. What was life like for little Billy? Um, Yeah, so I grew up in a town about 15 minutes from where I currently live now in Bowdies, North Carolina. But I lived there probably at, I think we moved there when I was in fourth grade. So before that, I grew up in a single parent household, so my mom raised me and my two older brothers, and we kind of lived all over North Carolina, and she got remarried, and we eventually settled here in the foothills of North Carolina. And so for us, I mean, it was a mixed bag. You know, we were in a family that was divided, which was challenging at times, for sure, having to go between parents. Um, We lived with my mom the majority of the time, but we would go and visit my dad on the coast of North Carolina during the summer. And so there were definitely challenges with it, but my mom constantly made the push for us to um, know who Jesus was, um, to be involved in the local church. And so we grew up really in church, hearing a lot about who Jesus was. And um, we certainly were a rowdy group of boys. um, That's for sure. Me and my elder brothers. But yeah, I mean, I guess that's like a, that's my childhood in a really small nutshell. Yeah. What were your thoughts about God and Jesus? Oh, man. Yeah. I was, uh, I was a very spiritual little kid. I'll say that much for sure. Um, Like I, I definitely wanted to be, I wanted to become a Christian when I was in preschool. I didn't know what that meant or really the understood the depth of it, but I knew that Jesus was really important. And so I really valued that, and I wanted that in my life. And so I remember um, even in middle school, uh, being like before I was in youth group, actually, this was in elementary school. I'm getting everything mixed up. I had this uh, New King James Study Bible, right? Because uh, you know a fifth grader can understand that. And I would just like write stuff in the margins. It didn't make any sense. I'm, I wish I could find that because I'm sure it would be you know theologically horrible. But I definitely was really interested in who is God, who is Jesus. Um, how, how has he impacted me and my family? It was kind of something that was always talked about in my in my childhood home. So in high school, did you stay that route? Yeah. So for me, what's interesting is in high school, I, um, I was definitely involved in youth group. And I kind of got to this place um, that I think a lot of people get to in the church. Um, and, and let me say this differently, not in the church, but in unhealthy churches 
where you kind of have nominal faith. So you think, because I go to a church, because I say the right things, I'm good. And so that's kind of how I felt. But little by little, I started to kind of just let uh, my guard down. And I started to realize how much I cared about what people thought of me and how much I wanted um, just all the things that I thought would satisfy me. And so I kind of just compromised a lot, compromised a lot in relationships, um, made mistakes. I should, I should have, you know, I went too far in certain relationships. I um, kind of just haphazardly ignored God, ignored the church um, for a while until probably my, um, yeah, it was my senior year of high school. There was just this kind of beckoning back where God began to just stir my heart and call me towards him. And honestly, I would say that's probably where I actually feel like God regenerated my heart. Could you share the circumstances around that? Sure. I was dating a girl. Um, it was a really unhealthy relationship. I uh, didn't know what I wanted to do after I graduated high school. For a long time, I thought maybe I'd go into ministry, but I wasn't sure. And then now all of a sudden, it was like all of this, like who I am, who my identity was, was wrapped up in this relationship. And I was in bands. And so it was wrapped up in music. And I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And then I got invited by the new youth pastor to go to this like big youth event and be a leader, a small group leader for one of the rooms, which is really funny because, you know, looking back on it, I was not super proactive and probably shouldn't have been asked to be a small group leader. But I went and I was just overwhelmed um, by the presence of God and knew that I was in a place of rebellion and knew that I was in a place of sin. So I don't know if it was like exactly a regeneration moment. I don't know if I had, cause there's a quote from Jared Wilson um, that's really, really good where he says, if you were to ask me today when I was saved, I would answer not entirely humorously about 2000 years ago. He says, indeed, because I have been predestined for salvation by the one who foreknew me before I was born or had done anything good or bad. And because the lamb was slain from the foundation of the world, I don't need the security of the date of my new birth. I need only the security of knowing he who I'm, whom I have believed and am convinced is able to safeguard my life for all eternity. So that's what I think, too. Um, I don't have like a specific set date, but... Um, I know that there was this very real moment of I need to change and I need to repent. And it was a God showed me that it, it was born out of this like deep rooted affection uh, for him. I felt broken and overwhelmed. And so I really wanted to change. And so I ended that relationship, um, stopped being in these bands and just kind of put all my focus and energy on plugging into the church and me and my brother started a Bible study right after that, that grew to like about 40 people in our, our living room, just kind of digging through books of the Bible and asking questions. And it was really cool. It was a cool moment. And so where did that lead you? So I made the decision to, um, I wanted to go into ministry and I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Um, I was 18. So I thought I'll be a youth pastor, right? Because it's really cool to hang out with other kids my age. So um, I thought that's what I wanted to do and decided I needed to go to some type of college, applied to a bunch of different places, got in, and my brother Drew kind of made a big pitch to go to the same college as him. So I wanted to get as far away from Burke County, North Carolina as I could, so I went to Missouri. 
and uh, plugged into Central Christian College with my brother. And so during your years at Central Christian College, were you affirmed in, in where your life was leading as far as ministry goes? Yeah, so I would say I knew at some point in high school that there was a there was a call on my life. And um, I felt like this is how who God had hardwired me to be. Um, but I wanted to push against that in a lot of ways. And I made a lot of dumb decisions. And I get to college and I have no clue like what I want to do or who I'm supposed to be. And I start just kind of going to class. And after my first semester, I was like, am I supposed to be here? Like, is this like for me? I did some youth ministry stuff and I didn't like it, um, which was really surprising. And I kind of just didn't really know what to do. So the next semester comes around and I'm barely trying. Um, I stopped going to class. I stopped uh, showing up. And because of the way our college is set up, you have to attend a certain number of classes. If you miss too many, you fail. So I failed literally all of my classes. And Central asked me to sit out a semester. And that was a big bummer uh, because I didn't know what what I was going to do. I was halfway across the country away from home. I thought maybe I should go back to North Carolina. Uh, We had this really great Bible study and this great thing going. Why did I leave? And all the while, I had started helping um, with this little country church in Winnegan, Missouri, which is a really small town, about 50 people. And they had me doing youth group every week. I got paid like this tiny little stipend to be a youth minister. And one Sunday they asked me if I would preach. Um, I thought I'd give it a try. I don't really know what I'm doing. Um, I've never really preached before. I've never thought about preaching. I don't think I would want to preach. Um, and I just sat down and wrote probably the world's worst sermon and then preached one Sunday morning and I loved it. I absolutely loved it. It felt like this is who I am and what God's called me to do. And after it was over, you know, you got these sweet old ladies telling you, you know, you're the next Billy Graham, which is hilarious. Um, because I'm definitely not, um, but they were very gracious and loving. And a few months later, um, as I was sitting out of college, I didn't really know what to do. I was thinking about leaving this opportunity presented itself where the pastor who was preaching there, um, was moving on to finish out his seminary degree. And the church asked me if I would preach for them. And so for the next four years, I was the preaching minister at Winnegan Christian Church, and I loved it. It was like it gave me all the zeal in the world to like get my head down and get back into school and focus and get it done. And so I graduated with a much better GPA than I started with, and um, I loved it. I learned to love feasting on God's word. And there was kind of, there was almost like this second uh, conversion experience, I would say, in this process of ministry, where I had grown up in churches that I believe certainly loved Jesus, but didn't value expositional preaching, meaning preaching through books of the Bible, letting the text um, be where we draw our point from whether they would just kind of come up with an idea and then go to the Bible to support that idea. And I also grew up in churches that didn't really have a strong preference for any kind of biblical theology. So I was kind of learning on the fly. 
Um, and I just fell in love with the word of God in such a way that everything kind of became new again. And I had this kind of theological renaissance where I embraced reformed theology and to, to the chagrin of some of my professors and really just fell in love with God's word and fell in love with preaching. And, um, that was my collegiate experience. Yeah. So you felt the call of God, um, to preach and, and I love how that just spoke to who God created you to be. Well, I'm going to shift a little bit. What I do with the second half of the interviews is is dive into how you've seen the power of God um, in your life and ways that God has met you in challenges or experiences in life that there's no other way to do that you would have survived it other than God. There are probably two stories that stand out for me. The first is when I was in college, I was hardcore about I ain't dating anybody when I first got there. Because, again, I had made some dumb decisions in high school and I made some dumb decisions like with girls in general and just knew that like I had like a bad track record. Right. So I was not going to make these mistakes again. So it got to a point, I think, my sophomore year of college where I just stopped talking to girls. <laughs> that was kind of my thing. Like I just stayed away. And little by little, um, I kind of eased up on that. And I did date. And every time I dated, I was really closed off. And like I would never be physically intimate in any way, like barely even handholding, because I wanted to make sure that I was safeguarding my heart and theirs as well. So fast forward, and I ended up dating this girl. Um, her name was Julie. And we dated for three years in college. And I fell in love with her. I thought she was the greatest person in the world. Um, I used to just, she lived in New York. And during the summer, I'd fly up to see her and we'd spend time together. And then her family moved to Florida and I went and I helped them move to Florida. And there was just like this whole interaction and relationship. And when you're in a small Bible college, you're really like, relationships are really public. It's almost like the local, you know, soap opera for everybody to watch and observe. And so we were a couple that everyone rooted for and that people really enjoyed being with. And so in my mind, this was like perfect, you know, like everything's going great. I'm dating this girl um, and I love her and she loves me and we both love Jesus and we're going to do ministry together. And about this time, again, I, I mentioned that I had this kind of renaissance, this like uh, of of rediscovering God and rediscovering his word. And I, I embraced reformed theology. Well, in tandem with that, I knew what it was like growing up in a church um, that was topical preaching, nominal Christianity. And so my heart just began to be really heavy for so many areas where there's not Bible teaching, Jesus loving, gospel centered churches. And so I started to really feel this draw towards church planting. So I shared that with her and she seemed interested in it, but absolutely intimidated by it because, you know, church planting meant raising support and a lot of uphill battling and it was going to be really hard. And so we talked about it, but she was willing to kind of investigate that. So at this time, I didn't really know where I wanted to go when it came to church planting. So I just thought spin a globe and go where, you know, put your finger down and, and land on the hardest place. And so for me in America, that seemed like the Northeast, like New England, New York. And um, I decided that's where I wanted to go. 
And that's the direction that I took. So I went and did a summer internship at a large church in uh, the Newburgh, New York area, uh, Grace Community Church. Amazing church. Love the Lord. Really fantastic. Explosive growth. They went. They were getting ready to go multi-site when I showed up as an intern and absolutely loved it. And there was this opportunity, these murmurs of like me getting involved and being a college age uh, pastor, and it would have been a really good career move. It could have like laid some foundational pathways for me to church plant in the Northeast. So I'm in New York, and my uh, girlfriend, who is at this time my fiance, I had proposed to her earlier that year, and she said yes, and we were really excited. So we had been doing some kind of distance stuff. We were getting ready to get together again. We booked our honeymoon. We were getting ready to start our our premarital counseling. And um, we've been talking on the phone like every day. And it was really cool. It was kind of actually a cool thing because the church I was in was the church she grew up in. So I was hanging out with her high school friends and people who knew her really well. And it was just this really cool experience where I'm like, man, she's going to get to come back to this place that she loves. She's going to be around all these people that she misses. It's going to be perfect. Four days before I'm supposed to fly down to Florida where her and her family are to see her and finish uh, arrangements for marriage, I get a phone call from her. And the gist of the phone call was, Billy, I'm not sure I love you. I'm not sure I've ever loved you. I feel like the pressure of being in Bible college and everyone rooting for us made me feel like I had to date you. I don't want a church plant. It scares me. I think you need to be with someone else because I'm with someone else. And it really hurt. Um, I mean, and I, I'm probably not even like doing an adequate job, honestly, of, of painting the picture of pain. Like I, I like was broken beyond belief. Like I, there was like another hour of that phone call of me like pleading with her to reason and, and to think like through what she was doing. I grabbed like fistfuls of dirt and cried after she hung up on me. Like I didn't know who I was. I was like all the way across the country. I had laid my life down to like try and make everything work. Like I, I had like, you know, played every card I could from all the connections I had to to be in this place and have this career. And it the whole thing just shattered in front of me. Mm-hmm. And um, I remember just being so broken and so confused and so frustrated that I didn't know who to, what to do. I called two people. The first person was I called my mentor for the internship I was doing because he knew he knew uh, Julie personally, and he just he encouraged me and he prayed for me. And then I called my brother Daniel, and it was like 1 a.m. at this time. And I told Daniel, I don't know what to do. Daniel had just gotten married, um, and he was dumbfounded. I mean, we had just joked at his wedding a few months earlier about how I was getting married next, and like how cool it was that we were all getting married and, you know, all these different variables. And it's like such a, it's just such a gut punch to, to lose all that. And I'll never forget what Daniel said. He said, Billy, here's the thing. I want to say to you, everything's going to be okay. Julie's just got cold feet. You don't need to worry about this. It's going to be all right. But man, in my heart of hearts, I feel like what I need to tell you is that Jesus is better And that you need to answer the question, is Jesus enough? If Julie is not just kind of going crazy with cold feet, is she like, if she's actually leaving you, which she definitely was, is Jesus enough? He told me to read 1 Peter 
and consider this hope of consider the hope of Christ in the midst of suffering, in the midst of turmoil. And I read First Peter, I think four times that night. Finally fell asleep at like four thirty in the morning. I uh, the next couple days tried to piece everything together. Previously that summer I had been in a car accident. I hit a deer and so I lost my vehicle. I had one plane ticket and it was to Florida. So I had to try and rearrange that. I ended up having to just um, buy a new plane ticket. The church graciously offered to buy me a new one to North Carolina. And I flew to North Carolina and started picking up the pieces of my life. I got back to um, school in Missouri and it was a nightmare because I had scheduled every single class with her. And it felt like I just couldn't escape um, this pain. And I constantly asked myself the question, is Jesus enough? About this time, I knew that I wanted to get involved in church planning. So my brother Daniel had gotten involved with this church called Cara's Church, which is how you and I know each other, Jill. And Mm -hmm. uh, he just begged me, begged me, begged me to come. And I came and I was a really mopey emo kid. I had like swoopy emo hair. I was really scrawny and sad. And uh, there was a guy at the church, Ryan Davis, who didn't know me, but knew that I was teetering towards depression. And he took me out and said, hey, can I like just buy you some pizza? And we went to Gumby's a Pizza Place in Columbia. And we sat down and he just started pouring out his story for me mm. and, and told me afterwards. He said, look, you have got to combat depression with thankfulness. Start thanking God for all the good things he's done for you. If you can't think of any anything, just start thanking him that you have breath. Like, thank him that you have clean water. Just start thanking him for anything you can think of. And, man, that was so life-giving to me. Um, other men like um, Derek Zimmerman and Bobby Scambry and all these guys who just became really dear friends pressed in and started loving on me. And the, the value of the local church became really palpable. Mm-hmm. So that was probably the first instance that came to mind when you asked about, um, you know, a moment where I felt like God really was powerful and working in my life and and was all the sustenance and hope that I had. Um, Yeah. The other story um, is a little, little fresher. So um, two years ago, my wife and I were expecting. So fast forward from that story from Julie, couple, uh, uh, not long after that, I met um, my now wife who I already knew as a friend, but we started a date um, a little while later. And um, she got connected at Karis as well. And one thing that my ex-fiance had said to me, she said, there's going to be someone who loves you infinitely more than I ever could. And she basically spoke prophetically because my wife, Hannah, is a treasure. Anyone who knows her adores her. She's the greatest gift that God has ever given me. Um, I love her to pieces. I love her so much. And um, she loves me so well. So Hannah and I were expecting our first child, which was super duper exciting. Um, Hannah is just built to be a mom. Like you just see her with children and she's absolutely incredible with children. Children cling to her. You know, even as we've planted here in North Carolina, I watched the kids, um, who know her like the other Sunday it was just one of the kids just ran up and just cling to her arm, her leg and just wouldn't let her go. And, and that's Hannah. You know, she's just got this presence about her that people want to be around her and enjoy her. 
And so we were expecting and everyone was excited. And it was this really, you know, both simultaneously terrifying and um, exciting experience to be expecting a child. Everyone's given us advice. People are buying us baby clothes already. And um, we were really, really excited. Hannah was a doula, which is a birthing coach. Um, for those of you who don't know what a doula is, she basically, she didn't do the delivery itself. She was there to help um, be an ad, an advocate for the mother. Um, and it was really, really cool to see how well she had done that. She had done that for multiple people within the church. And so this was a cool experience for her to now finally get to experience that for herself. And so we decided to go the hippie route and use a midwife because that's kind of, we're, we're granola people, I guess. And so we were really excited. We had kind of gone through everything. The pregnancy was looking good. We were excited. We had our little pictures and we were going to meet the midwife for the first time. And um, it was just going to be this really, really, really cool experience. Um, Hannah just texted me and said, it's activist, not advocate. So she can hear me in the other room. So <laughs> activist, not advocate. She doesn't speak for the mother. She empowers the mother to speak for herself. So good, good. all right. Good clarification. Get so, that being said. So we're really eager. We're really excited. And we go in to meet uh, the midwife for the time. And we were really eager and excited. And man, um, we were it was a really cool experience kind of learning about the birthing process firsthand. And Hannah just had this motherly inclination. She just felt like something was wrong. And she just said, Hey, I, I, I would really like to hear the baby's heartbeat. And the midwife said, no problem. Like you totally can hear the baby's heartbeat. Um, so she goes and she gets the, the little machine that you can hear the baby's heartbeat. And um, you kind of just notice her face turn into a grimace. And um, from there, they just say, you know, sometimes the baby can hide. We'll just go get this other machine. And they couldn't find the baby. Finally, she gets the other midwife who had horrible bedside manner. Um, I came in and she looked around and she just said to Hannah, and I'll never forget, I'm very sorry. I think you've had a missed abortion, which is the medical term. But it's just like not what you want to say to someone um, when 10 minutes ago they thought they were a mother. And she was she is a mother. Uh, but it's it just this. It, we didn't know what to do. Um, we, we were we didn't we, we didn't know what to do. We just we just started weeping. Um, I text my my boss and just said, I can't I can't come in like I can't like I won't be able to work. Um and I got a hold of Hannah's boss and, and we I took care of it. And then I told the elders, I had recently become a pastor and elder at Paris. And I let them know what was going on. And then Hannah and I just sat in this room and held each other and cried. Huh. We got moved to another side of the hospital and uh, they did a more formal um, ultrasound to confirm that there was no baby. Uh, and again, we just wept as we sat in a room and waited to meet with one of the doctors. We were told that because of the um, Hannah was 14 weeks. So because it was later, they wanted to do a DNC. And so it was this procedure basically to take care of um, the fetus and any fetal tissue so that she wouldn't have to have an, an overwhelmingly devastating miscarriage at home. 
we didn't know what to do. Like we just kind of fell apart. Um, I saw Hannah um, just kind of lose this like sense about her um, where she didn't really know what to do or who she was. We mourned for a few days and then we went in for a DNC and Hannah got taken back and I just sat in the waiting room with uh, some of the other pastors and friends and family. And it's just such a gut-wrenching, emptying feeling. I remember all the times that Hannah and I like prayed and asked God why. One of the things I did was immediately after we left, um, after we found out that uh, we had miscarried, was we went and we sat in the car, and I just played the song Sovereign over us because I couldn't pray. Like, I didn't know what to say. I just knew I needed, I knew God was present because I had felt his presence with me in suffering before, but I didn't know how to lead my wife in it. Hannah, you know, fast, fast forward back to that DNC moment. Hannah gets out and we meet up with her and she's just sad. There's no other way to put it before she went under, um, the lady who was administering her medication, I forget the medical term for it, was literally wiping away her tears. It was just just the whole moment. She's wrong. You know it's not the way it's supposed to be. It's this like really bitter reminder that the world is deeply broken. We went home. We went back to work. Hannah began to heal. One of the things that was suspicious, though, was Hannah lost a lot of blood during the DNC um, to the point she actually passed out. And so um, during recovery afterwards. And so we had to wait in the hospital a little longer. Well, that ended up being a a sign of what kind of miscarriage we had, which was a a type of miscarriage called a, a molar pregnancy. John won't get into all the specifics, but essentially what, what happens is your body is still excreting uh, you, your body still excreting this hormone even though you're not pregnant. And so that can actually lead to cancer. So now I get this phone call at work from Hannah that tells me, hey, not only did we lose our baby, but I might have cancer. Um, I don't know what to do. We're told by the doctor we need to go every week for six weeks and then every month for six months. And that we really shouldn't have a ch- try and have a child for a year. So it went from we miscarried to we miscarried and it was late to we had a really brutal type of miscarriage. That meant we couldn't even try to conceive for another year. And every every month it was just this painful reminder to go to the doctor all over again. But what was so incredible is the way the church embodied the hands and feet of Jesus. So this past Sunday, I had the honor of preaching at a friend's church um, in a town about an hour from here. And one one of the things I preached on was it was this interaction between Jesus and Peter and how Jesus is kind of restoring and recommissioning Peter. And he's calling Peter back to lead the charge for the church. And in that, there's this statement about discipleship that 
we are not called just to Jesus, but we're called to Jesus and his church. That Jesus is not a single person, but he has a bride. And in the same way that if you said, Billy, I like you, but I think Hannah's a jerk, I probably wouldn't want to hang out with you. I think it's really lame when people say, I love Jesus, just not the church. Because you're you're denying Jesus, actually, in that. And you're missing something from Jesus when you don't have the church. And I could say even, and this isn't necessarily like a call to say that you're in sin and it's really bad, though it is that. It's deeper than that. It's like you're missing joy. Because I remember people just bringing us food and people just praying for us and people just loving us. I mean, even still, like people are like sending us cards near Mother's Day or near um, the due date of our baby and just praying for, reminding us of the gospel, reminding us of the sweetness of Jesus. I mean, you guys brought us cookies even that first week. Just so many little moments of people embodying God being the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our mourning, and, and who's the God who is near to the brokenhearted. There was a moment, too, where Hannah just said to me, she was at a gathering on Sunday morning, and she said, I couldn't sing. My words, like I could not form them in my mouth because I knew they weren't true in my heart. But the songs of the saints and the voices of those around me lifted my heart to where my heart finally caught up to my mouth and I was able to sing praise to God, even in that. There's just this tangibleness of the presence of God that he somehow uses our suffering, even our pain, for his glory. There's a really excellent little book called uh, Gospel Primer by uh, Milton Vincent, and it's really good. It's really short, and he talks about the gospel for Christians, and he talks about it in prose and poetry. And he has this uh, little part on suffering, and I'm going to read it. It's really good. He says, more than anything else could ever do, the gospel enables me to embrace my tribulations and thereby position myself to gain full benefit from them. For the gospel is the one great permanent circumstance in which I live and move, and every hardship in my life is allowed by God only because it serves his gospel purpose in me. When I view my circumstances in this light, I realize that the gospel is not just one piece of good news that fits into my life somewhere among all the bad, I realize instead that the gospel makes genuinely good news out of every aspect of my life, including my severest trials. The good news about my trials is that God is forcing them to bow to his gospel purpose and do good unto me by improving my character and making me more conformed to the image of Christ. Preaching the gospel to myself each day provides a lens through which I can view my trials in this way and see the true cause for intelligent rejoicing that exists in them. I can then embrace them as friends and allow them to do God's work in me. Man, just these two, like there are so many more stories I could share, but just these, even these two moments where God revealed his closeness and his almost surgical precision to use suffering in such a way to shape and mold us into a peculiar glory. Um, it just made everything kind of come to life. Like scripture comes to life. Reading things like Second Corinthians, you just you feel like Paul is a weary friend who's been through the wars and has sat in it with you. 
And so when he says things like, you know, this present moment of suffering isn't worth comparing with the eternal weight of glory, like those words have meaning and richness. And so even now, as Hannah and I, we have up to this point been unable to conceive. And actually, even this evening, we were at a class for foster care. We're seeing even the ways in which God is using that and preparing us to hopefully be able to be a gospel light in a child's life and to embody an image of the gospel to a watching world. So, yeah, it's been a tremendous, tremendous thing to see God work even in suffering. Thank you for sharing that, Billy. Watching you guys walk through that was hard. Um, But like you said, seeing the body of Christ come around you and your immediate family. I mean, you have such a wonderful set of brothers and sister-in-laws. But um, just walking with you through that and seeing God healing your hearts and, and fixing your eyes on him has been really beautiful to watch and displayed as an example because um, yeah suffering is so common <laughs> mm-hmm. um, it's so common in in the church and um, I was just editing Darren's podcast today and, and really with this very similar theme of of suffering and and how it doesn't just go away um, but God meeting you in the suffering so thank you for sharing that the last question I love to end on is why are you glad you follow Jesus today? Oh man. Well, I want to answer that question, but I also want to add, um, Hannah doesn't have cancer. I never clarified that. So maybe someone's listening to this who doesn't know us and they're like, does she have cancer? He never said she doesn't. Um, so why, why does following Jesus today? Like, why do I, why am I still glad to follow him? Man, because he is my greatest prize. I think the thing that is so rich about the gospel is that the gift we're given is Christ himself. Um, He is everything. He is the reason I press on every day is that I might gain Christ, that I might have him, that knowing him now is sweet, but knowing him when faith becomes sight, to long for that day when the lamb will be the lamp that lights everything, man, it is my greatest joy and hope and prize. And so it is my the delight of my life to follow him and give everything I have to him. That is awesome. I love that response. And that's like your drive and your passion for being in North Carolina. Mm-hmm. Um, first of all, what are you doing in North Carolina and how can we pray for you? Sure. So I am planting a church here in North Carolina. I'm planting Coram Deo Church, which is a Reformation motto that means before the face of God or presence of God. So God began to woo me back to my home state a few years ago and woo me back really to my hometown um, for the very reasons of growing up in an area where I see nominal Christianity taking over, where the church is a thousand miles wide and one inch deep. Uh, Flannery O'Connor has a quote. She said, that the South has never been Christ-centered, though it is truly Christ-haunted. Um, it is definitely that. You hear whispers of his name, but you do not see the tangible presence of his gospel. So we are planting a church that we want to see be a gospel-centered community that's being faithful here in Morganton, North Carolina. So you could pray for us. We're in a season of gathering. Um, we have a, an awesome core group of people that we love and we're sharing with every Sunday evening. We're going to be doing some preview services this summer. Right now, we're trying to find a location, so pray for that. Um, And we also will hopefully be, God willing, launching in September. 
So that's really exciting. Um, we got through Acts 29 assessment, which is the church planning network we're a part of this past fall. We're officially candidates, which is really exciting. And so we get to just continue to network and build relationships with other churches. And really our heart has just continued to swell for this region. We want to see more faithful churches being planted here. And we've just been really blessed to see God uh, connect us with some really incredible churches already who are partnering with us and want to see the same thing. So that's really good. Wow. Praise God. We'll definitely pray for that. We'll pray for you guys as you're on your journey to foster care as well, too. Yes, please pray for that. I can't believe I didn't mention that. Yeah, um, uh, we are definitely excited about that. God, just we we thought adoption and then the more and more we kind of chewed on it. We talked to some old cars friends, uh, Melissa and Ryan Worley, who planted a church in Arkansas, and they, along with others, compelled us to, to look to foster care. And so we're excited to do that as well. Yeah. Oh, so wonderful. Well, Billy, thank you so much for taking some time out tonight and sharing your story. Um, it's good to see you. Yeah. Um, I look forward to talking to Hannah, hopefully here in a couple, couple days. So anyways, thank you. You guys have a good night. Absolutely. Take care, Joe. Who else but the Lord could so faithfully bring his people through the crushing dark experiences of life? I was very encouraged by Billy's words and perspective on this side of his trials, and I could feel the joy radiating from him when he shared why he was glad that he followed Jesus. You might have heard a few name drops in this episode. I encourage you to check out Ryan's story from episode 13, Bobby's in episode 9, Derek's in episode 15, and here in a couple weeks, Melissa Worley. All these interwoven stories of God's great redemption story. If you like this podcast, the easiest way to follow and not miss an episode is to subscribe. Listen to an encouraging story each week. Thank you for listening. Be encouraged and tell your story too.